Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. So what is love? If one spouse turns to another and says, I love you, what do they mean by that? If you have someone come to you who's contemplating marriage and say, I I think I have fallen in love, what does that mean? What would you say? How would you define this reality called love, especially in light of marriage? What makes for the best kind of married love? I ran across some definitions of such things this past week. I want to share a few of them with you. Some of them are from names you will recognize. Woody Allen, for example, said, I was nauseous and tingly all over. I was either in love or I had smallpox. (laughs) A woman named Kathy Carlisle says, Love is an electric blanket with somebody else in control of the switch. Joan Crawford, the actress from yesteryear, Love is a fire, but whether it's going to warm your heart or burn down your house, you can never tell. (laughs) And the American author, playwright, and educator Eric Segal said, True love comes quietly. Without banners or flashing lights, if you hear bells, get your ears checked. (laughs) Lucy Van Pelt, all I really need is love, but a little chocolate now and then doesn't hurt. Or what about Zsa Zsa Gabor, the oft-married one? A man in love, she said, is incomplete until he's married, then he's finished. (laughs) She would know. And on the other side of the coin, Mae West spoke and said, A woman has got to love a bad man once or twice in her life to be thankful for a good one. (laughs) Someone here today is thinking, well, I'm due a good one. (laughs) Gracie Allen, love is a lot like a backache. It doesn't show up on x-rays, but you know it's there. (laughs) And then finally, Winnie the Pooh. Good old Winnie who said, If you live to be a hundred, I want to live to be a hundred minus one day so I never have to live without you. What is love? What makes for the best kind of married love? I want to take you to a passage of Scripture today in the Song of Songs, chapter 5. I have to tell you that I first encountered this passage at the wedding of some friends. I was a seminary student at Andrews University, and I had gone to attend the wedding of two undergraduate students there that I had gotten to know, Dan Reichert and Lynn Stout. In fact, I shook Dan's hand coming in this morning. Dan and Lynn are now members here of our congregation. The preacher for the day, someone I would later get to know and appreciate profoundly, a gentleman named Dwight Nelson, for their wedding opened the book Song of Songs. And for the first time, I read today's passage. 
and I was immediately drawn to it. Over the years since then, I've spent some time with the passage, lingering over it, studying it, trying to understand a bit of its meaning. It's a passage that overall contains, I would suggest, three. Three ingredients, three elements to the best kind of married love. So that's where we turn our thoughts today, Song of Songs, chapter 5. Invite you to turn there and to know a bit about the context first. The Song of Songs is not an unfolding of one narrative plot line. Rather, it appears in different almost photographs, moments of time in the life and experience of these two lovebirds. As we look in on them today, they're married. They're beginning to experience some of the realities of marriage. They're beginning to know some of the bumps in life. They're experiencing that here, and it is in that context that they reveal to us what I would suggest are three critical ingredients to the best kind of married love. Now, before we read, I'll just tell you, there is a women's chorus that appears over and over again throughout the song. They appear here right at the beginning of what we're about to read. When they appear, they are asking her, what is it about him? Why have you chosen him? How's he better than all the others in Jerusalem? And she's going to give her answer. So we go to Song of Songs, beginning in verse 9 with their question. They ask, verse 9, How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? And now comes her response. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory, decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. And then come two of the three ingredients as she summarizes why he's better than the others. She says, this is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. Wow. Quite a statement on her part. And yet it provides us an insight into the best kind of married love and to what actually makes up that kind of love. Three ingredients, two in this part of the passage. She summarizes those two when she says, this is my beloved and this is my friend. So we begin with, this is my beloved. Now it's an interesting word that is used there. Because in the original, there are undeniable and even pronounced nuances of passion. This book is already hot to the touch. But then we come to this passage, and she says, uses this word, may be better translated the way some versions translate it. The NLT, New Living Translation, says, This is my lover, this is my friend. 
or Eugene Peterson in the message, who after the description says that she says, this is my lover, this is my man. <laughs> or what about the NIV 1984 edition that translates it also? This is my lover, this is my friend. They translate it that way because in the original language, there are those nuances of a passionate word. When she speaks of him in this terminology, she is speaking of chemistry, attraction. Now, because of the heat of the book, maybe, some have softened it, turned down the heat a little bit. This is my beloved. This is my friend. When we read that, more than a few of us wonder, well, how is this in the Bible? Few others think, how, how is it that we're talking about this in church? Well, if you find yourself asking those kinds of questions, you are far from alone. Because the truth is, throughout history, the interpretation of Song of Songs has shied away from that and has made it a spiritual reality, an allegory of the church and Jesus. That's what it's done over and over again. Discomfort with that. For example, take Matthew Henry. Well-known biblical scholar wrote a biblical commentary that many, many years later is still in use today. In fact, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, every preacher would do well at least once to read all the way through Matthew Henry's commentary and to do so very carefully because there's much depth, much, much richness there. But I'm not sure about how he handled the Song of Songs. I think he maybe stumbled just a bit there. I want to read you some words that he wrote in the introduction to this book, Song of Songs, in his commentary. Here's what Henry wrote. When we apply ourselves to the study of this book, we must not only, with Moses and Joshua, put off our shoe from off our feet, for we are on holy ground, but we must also forget that we have bodies. Pardon me? We must also forget that we have bodies. In other words, don't think this is about passion. This is about spiritual realities between God and his people. And yet that's not what the language says. Now, Henry was not alone. Douglas Sean O'Donnell has been very helpful to me in the study of this book with his commentary on the song. And he points out that if you look at church history, you will notice that there has long been an interest in this song, but that it has been spiritualized. For example, between the 2nd century and the 16th century, there were over 100 Latin commentaries written on the Song of Songs. That doesn't seem like a lot for all that time until you pause to consider that in the same time period, in that same time frame, there were six Latin commentaries written on Galatians, nine on Romans, 13 on the Gospel of Mark, and 16 on the Gospel of John. Over a hundred on the song. And virtually all of them 
followed exactly what Matthew Henry says. To use Henry's words, we must forget that we have bodies because here we're dealing with spiritual realities. Interestingly enough, when the Reformation came, the same trends continued. We have to ask ourselves why. Why the discomfort? Why the unwillingness to look at this as a love story between a man and a woman? There may have been different reasons, but almost undeniably one of the reasons was the fact that Neoplatonic dualism had slipped in to the scholarship. That kind of dualism, that separation, that division between the spiritual and the physical between the spirit and the body. The spirit was noble and good and pure, and it was to grow and to be desired. The body, well, in many ways, it was kind of a necessary evil that we just learned to deal with. And thus it was that people like Matthew Henry, in writing about it, said, when you study this book, try to forget that you have a body. I want to read O'Donnell's words, admittedly direct, but listen to what he writes. When we apply ourselves to the study of this book, we must forget that we have bodies. He's quoting Matthew Henry. Really? Says who? Certainly not the Bible. When we open the Bible, we don't find a separation of body and soul, matter from spirit, or godly purity from physical passion. There is no devaluing of the human body. Think of the incarnation. Think of the bodily resurrection. There is no belittling of sensual delights. Think of Jesus celebrating a wedding by providing his miraculous vintage wine. There is no dichotomy between spirituality and sexuality, between loving God with heart and soul and loving one's wife or husband with heart and flesh, with eyes and hands and mouth and, well, you know what. That is what the Song of Songs brings to the table. And thank God. Thank God that the answer to the question, what do you think of the human body, is it is good. And thank God the answer to the question, what do you make of physical pleasure within marriage, is no different. Both bodily beauty and pure passion are very good. Thus saith the Lord. Wow. So we listen to the woman. As she is asked the question, why him? Above all these others, why him? She gives a wonderful description and loving detail of this man who seems to be larger than life, but then she summarizes it. And when she summarizes it, first thing she says is, this is my beloved. This is my lover. So first ingredient to the best kind of married love Passion. Passion from Scripture. We as a church, we as parents, do ourselves no favors if we pretend it's not there. But she's not done with her answer. She not only says, this is my beloved, she goes on to give us the second of three ingredients. This is my beloved. This is my Friend, my friend, imagine that in a male-dominated world in which she lived and spoke. This is my friend. 
We walk together. We share together. We talk together. We grow together. We are friends. Please don't miss that. It is easy in our world and in our culture that is so saturated with sex everywhere we turn, it is easy to get focused on the passion piece and miss out on the friendship piece. In fact, those who do so, do so to their hurt. If the relationship is largely based on the passion, they'll wake up a year, two, three, four years later and look at this person and think, who are you? I don't even like you. How did I miss that up till this point in time? How's that possible? Well, maybe it's possible because the time was not given to develop that intimacy that comes with friendship. Just think about why you have certain platonic friends. Think about the friends you have, and you will probably discover that the friends that you have, you have because you have many commonalities. You go to the same school, you live in the same neighborhood, you work out at the same gym, you work at the same office, you play basketball together, you have a lot of things in common, you study together, and as you spend all this time together, you quite naturally fall into conversation. You start sharing life together, and as you share life together, you grow together, and as you grow together, you come to know each other better. As you come to know each other better, you come to like each other more. Friends. If in the first statement, this is my beloved, she is talking about desire and love and attraction. In this one, she's talking about liking. I like him. We're friends. We sometimes overlook that. For example, when was the last time you went to a wedding where the preacher stood up and said to the couple standing in front of him or her, said to them, do you solemnly swear to like this person? To just like them? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure I will always like them. Somehow it, it becomes the case that it's on occasion easier to love than it is to like. The love and the attraction that the beloved deals with, the friend with liking. And liking requires sharing life together. Friendship requires sharing your worlds with each other, and that's a difficult thing to do. It's a difficult thing to do here in 21st century Southern California where life is hectic and harried and hurried. We sometimes aren't willing to pay the price required for friendship. That struck me in the reading of a story by Michael Woodruff, a pastor named Michael Woodruff who wrote this, Americans are good at many things, but being friends and sharing life is not one of them. Our iconic figures, the cowboy, the police detective, always seem to ride alone. They can't be slowed down by a partner. I first realized how narrowly most Americans view friendships when I was traveling with a Brazilian leader. He'd started a thriving seminary, planted a church, written books. The man makes things happen. As we were driving from one meeting to another, I said, Hey, do you want a cup of coffee? He said, Really? We, we, we have time? Wow. I'm honored. That would be great. I'm thinking, I don't know why he's so thrilled. <laughs> cup of coffee. I quickly pull into a drive through coffee stand. 
And he says, oh, you Americans, I feel so sorry for you. I thought you were asking to be my friend. I thought we were going to sit together and share life. No, 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 don't have time for that. Here's a drive-thru. It's quick, fast, get on our way. It's not easy. As I thought about this, this, this past week with this passage and thought about my own marriage and realized the stresses and the pressures to constantly be on the move, the difficulty that it is to slow down and just talk, I realized what a challenge it is. Now, I know there can be many things said about how to have a good marriage. You might pay attention, for example, to Mark Twain. Remember what Mark Twain said about marriage? He said, when it comes to marriage, keep your eyes wide open before and half closed after. <laughs> That's good wisdom. That's good advice. But as good as that is, I would add to it and keep talking and keep listening. After all, the marital researcher John Gottman, a familiar name to many of us, after years of research says that one of the important findings, one of the important conclusions he and his research team have reached is this one. Very simple. It says, I've come to believe that for a marriage to not just survive but thrive requires about an hour of conversation a day. A day. Doesn't all have to be at the same time. Doesn't all have to be at the same depth. It just requires that there be a sharing of life, a talking together, becoming friends. And as you become friends, you may find that you like each other. That's the second ingredient of the best kind of married love, according to this woman, according to this couple. This is my beloved passion. This is my friend. Intimacy. Emotional closeness and connectedness. There's a third ingredient. We're going to have to read earlier in the passage to find this ingredient. But I want to give you the setting before I read that because there is a setting to what we read earlier. There is a reason why the chorus of women are asking this woman, why did you choose him of all the others in Jerusalem? Why him? There's a reason they're asking her that. Here's the background. They're married. They've had a wonderfully romantic coming together and joining and wedding ceremony, but they're now hitting a rough patch in marital life. It's true of every marriage and every moment. In marriage is a possibility for that encounter that suddenly goes bad, and they are experiencing one of them. So here's the, here's the setting. Here's the scene. She's waiting for him. They apparently have made some kind of agreement. He's coming home. She's prepared herself. She's waiting. He's late. She waits and waits, finally gets frustrated and tired, changes, goes to bed. Then he comes home. He can't get in, banging on the door. She won't let him in because she's frustrated. So then he gets mad and he leaves. She goes out to find him. He's gone. And so now she runs after him through the night trying to find him. 
Can't find him anywhere. And in her day and time, in her culture, a woman alone at night, that wasn't a good thing. The morals police found her and beat and bruised her for being in that place at night by herself. And it was sometime after that that she encounters this chorus of women. And she says to these women, do you know where my beloved is? If you see him, would you tell him? I love him. And it's as though they look at her in the state that she's in. And then they ask her, why did you choose him? Out of all the others in Jerusalem, what was so good about him? In other words, it's not a question of admiration. It's a question of consternation. Why him? So read it with me. Song of Songs, chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 2. It says this, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. He's late, so he's using a lot of language. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. She says, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? In other words, I was all ready. Now I'm not. Verse 4, my beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I rose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him but did not find him. I called him but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him that I am faint with love. And then they ask, how is your beloved better than others? Most beautiful of women. How is your beloved better than others that you charge us so? Hasn't been a good evening. They had plans, apparently. They both have expectations. He's late. She's frustrated and tired. She decides, well, forget it then. Then he shows up. She won't let him in, bangs on the door. When he finally leaves, she says, oh, well, wait. And now she goes out after him. It's, it's a comedy of errors and miscommunication. O'Donnell, in his commentary, says, I can imagine the conversation being something like this. She says to him, you were late. He says, I know, I'm sorry. You were late. Why didn't you call? He says, because it's the Old Testament. There are no phones yet. And she says, well, you should have called anyway. <laughs> and from there, it goes downhill. Now, notice what happens. She finally goes out after him, takes the risk of going to find him, is hurt by the experience, is lost, cannot find him, finally finds the women. Please, if you find him, tell him one thing. Tell him that I love him. And that causes them to ask, how, how is this your man? 
Is he really the best you could find in all of Jerusalem? Now notice what happens next. Any married person here today, if we're honest with you, has been at a point like that, or two, or ten. Has been at a point like that, frustrated, hurt, upset, and then somebody, some friend, has the audacity to say, is that the best you could have done? (laughs) You know what most people would say in answer to that. Most people would say, you're right, I don't know what I was thinking. What in the world got into me? That is not what she says. At this moment, this moment of perplexity, of difficulty, and of challenge, why did you choose him? You know what her answer is? She describes a superhero, a larger-than-life Adonis, who is gorgeous to the eyes, who's overwhelming in his being. And then she ends up by saying of him, this man is my beloved, this man is my friend. I don't know what you call that. I'll tell you what I call that, commitment, commitment. Yes, we've hit a rough spatch. Yes, we've had a difficult time. Yes, we couldn't connect. Things have gone wrong. All of that is true. But let me tell you, in my heart of hearts, I still love her. I still adore him. My beloved, my friend, that's commitment. The third of the three ingredients, passion, Intimacy, commitment. I want to read you the words of an Old Testament scholar named Edward Curtis, who writing about this passage and this instance writes this. A key theme is the idea that the sort of relationship described in this poem is built on a foundation of commitment, something that is difficult to understand in our culture where contracts, agreements, and commitments of virtually every kind are viewed as revocable. What is needed is a mindset that takes one's words and promises seriously and recognizes the importance of honesty and integrity. It is important to regularly affirm our commitment to the one we love and to live it out in ways that build the kind of trust and confidence that will sustain the relationship in times of difficulty and struggle, which is exactly what they're facing. The application of these principles has the power to move many marginal marriages in other relationships as well, in the direction of the one depicted in the song, where husbands and wives, in the loving eyes of their spouses, take on the larger-than-life dimensions that we see in these poems. Such relationships, characterized by respect and praise, create a context where passion and delight can flourish and where others can see lived out before them aspects of God's love for His people. God is honored And we find great delight in relationships that function according to God's design. And so one spouse says to another, I love you. What does that mean? Friends or children come to you and say, we're we're on the verge of getting married. What kind of love do we need? How do you respond? I can't help but wonder if a good response is to listen to the song 
and to say, well, if you want the best kind of married love, take some passion. Mix it with some intimacy and found it all on commitment. That's not bad, folks. In fact, you may find that it's just a coincidence. Although it has been said that coincidence is when God chooses to remain anonymous. You may say it's just a coincidence, but I'd like you to consider it anyway. A stellar scholar in our world, our day and time, is a psychologist named Robert J. Sternberg. Sternberg is a professor at Cornell University, has a Ph.D. from Stanford, an undergraduate degree from Yale, has served both as professor and president at different prestigious universities. He's a past president of the American Psychological Association. He not only has an earned doctorate from Stanford, he has 13 honorary doctorates, two from institutions here in America, one from an institution in South America, one from an institution in Asia, and nine from institutions in Europe. He has authored more than 1,500 books, chapters, and articles. He's a stellar scholar. One of the reasons for which he is known is something that has become known as the triangular theory of love. In other words, Sternberg says, if you want to experience consummate love in your relationship, if you want the best kind of married love, it's probably as simple as a triangle. He says, in that triangle, the first element, the first ingredient to the best kind of married love is what he calls intimacy. By intimacy, he means friendship, emotional closeness, emotional connection. But he says you also have to have passion, chemistry, a desire for each other. And he also says you need to found this on commitment. The ability to say, I'm here for the long haul. I'm not going to duck out the back door. Scholars and students continue to study the triangular theory of love, continue to point out different realities about it, including Jack and Judith Balswick from Fuller Theological Seminary, my alma mater. Jack and Judith Balswick said, you know, that starts to sound kind of biblical. And so they looked at the words in the Greek language that in the New Testament are translated love. One of those words they discovered is the word, Greek word philia, from which we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly, sisterly love. It's a friendship connection. But they said another word in the New Testament that gets translated love is the word eros, which is a sensual kind of love with desire. But then they said, we all know if we've been in church any time, that word agape, that deepest, most profound, self-sacrificing, other-centered kind of love that says, I am here for the long haul. Sternberg, brilliant scholar, triangular theory of love. So when you say to your spouse, I love you, when you're wondering, what kind of love do I need to have to go the long haul in marriage? Strikes me, you, you, you could listen to Sternberg 
studied erudite scholar. Much written on the triangular theory of love. Or you could listen to a couple. An anonymous couple from millennia ago. Having a tiff, having a spat in their marriage. And out of that, we hear a song. A song that will be re-echoed millennia later by scholars. This is my beloved. This is my friend. And I'll find you no matter the cost because we're in this together. I don't know about you. I think that's pretty good love for marriage. Marriage.